afternoon. Let us open together to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be reading the entire chapter, 21 verses, in Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall be, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kerizzites, the Kidmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you this afternoon for giving us the opportunity to be in your house. We praise you, Lord, because every time we seek you, we truly find you. We thank you for your true promise that as those who knock, it will be open to them, and those who ask, they shall be given. And this afternoon, we ask for spiritual food to our souls. I pray that your word will be divided and blessed and given to us so that we can feed on it and be satisfied with it and grow in it 
and be edified by it. I ask for help in my weakness that I will be truthful to these words and be able to speak them by the guidance and the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. 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 The title of our sermon this morning is God, our shield and rewarder in times of fear. God, our shield and rewarder in times of fear. Recently, I was um, watching, me and Vicky were watching a documentary about Lady Diana Spencer, uh, the first wife of the current King Charles of England. And those of you who remember in the 80s and 90s, um, this lady was the most photographed woman on the face of the earth. Uh, she had everything a man or a woman could dream of. She was married to a future king. She, was, uh, she had the wedding of what was deemed at that time the wedding of the century. She was beautiful. She was rich. She was powerful. She was influential. And when you looked at her from a distance, um, I mean, she probably was the envy of every woman on earth. And yet, as the documentary goes on, and as we, those who lived in those days, who kind of were able to see her life, uh, you come to realize that this woman who looked so perfect on the outside, um, on the inside, she was a turmoiled uh, woman. She was um, unhappy in her marriage. She was uh, troubled. Um, she suffered from depression. Eventually, her life ended in divorce and finally in death. And it kind of shows you that sometimes what we see on the outside is not always, as a matter of fact, more often than not, it's not what happens on somebody's inner side. Um, I say this because this chapter starts with the verse, the beautiful verse, where God comes to Abraham and says to him surprising words, fear not. I say surprising because this chapter, chapter 15, follows chapter 13 and 14. And those of you who remember when we were studying those chapters, those chapters present Abraham as somebody who is almost leading a wonderful, perfect life. He was rich. He was at peace with his neighbors. He had just come back victorious from a war, liberating his nephew Lot. Even spiritually, he was doing very well. He had just met Melchizedek, the priest of God. He had tithed everything that he had. And that's where it ends, chapter 14. In that beautiful, this man, great man, who is victorious and in a good spiritual state and just probably the envy of those who are around him. And yet, we, look, we come to chapter 15. And as the Holy Spirit pulls the curtain little by little on what is happening on the insides of Abraham, we quickly come to discover that Abraham has turmoil inside him. It starts with indicating fear. Fear not. God is telling him that means he must have been feeling some sort of fear around him. 
And then his first question to God indicates that he was spiritually uh, in bewilderment when he says to God, what will you reward me? What will you give me for I go childless? And then as it goes on in his second question, we see that Abraham was even intellectually seeking certain kinds of assurances. He says, how will I know God? How will I know that I shall possess it? And these are the three things. That's our outline that I'm going to kind of explore with you this, uh, this morning. His fear, his spiritual um, lack of faith, and his uh, seeking of assurance and uncertainty and ex seeking explanations from God about what's going on with his life. But before we get into that, I just want to point to you a couple of things just to set up the scene that is this is happening. The first thing I want to point to you is that notice that it is God who draws near to Abraham in this moment of need. Um, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. God knows what is going on inside us. Sometimes God knows more than we know ourselves what is happening to us. And in moments like these, God would draw near and speak to us. And that's the second thing I want to point to you, is that in every one of these three issues that he was having, God deals with him with his word. When, it's the, when the chapter starts, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. That is a summary of the entire chapter. The entire chapter is a conversation between God and Abraham. And to every question, God comes back. The word, the word of the Lord said and saying about God speaking is repeated seven times in this chapter. To every question, to every dilemma that Abraham was being faced with at that moment, God dealt with him, giving him his word. And the last thing that is kind of um, important in this chapter is that notice it is God and Abraham alone. God comes to him in a moment when he is alone. And sometimes we need to be alone with God. We need to be alone with God and his word. And it is his word when we are alone in his presence that will reveal to us what is going on inside us. And it is his word in those moments of quietness that he can speak healing and help and encouragement to our souls. With that in mind, let us look at what was happening with Abraham. The first thing is fear. Fear not, for I am your shield. Now, what one would wonder, why would Abraham be afraid? Like I said, everything seems to be going very well for him on the outside. Well, maybe he's afraid because for the first time, he is truly alone. Lot has left him. And now he is truly alone 
in this foreign land. That could be a reason that for the first time when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldean, he said, leave your house, uh, father's house, leave your country and leave your kindred. The last thing that he had to let go of is the kindred. So Lot has left him. That could be why he's feeling maybe lonely, maybe a little intimidated. Maybe he was afraid because he had just gone to war and now he has some enemies, kings who he had defeated and maybe he's afraid of retaliation. I don't know why he was afraid, but he was clearly afraid. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell him, fear not. Fear is a natural human instinct. We all experience it. We all know what it feels. The first time we hear about fear in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden. When Adam, after he had sinned, hears the voice of the Lord, and he said, I heard your voice coming, and I was afraid. Fear is a consequence of the fall. And there's two things, two ways we can think about fear. We can fear of things around us horizontally, circumstantial fears. We can fear people. We can fear illness. We can fear death. We can fear enemies. We can fear the unknown. These are all things that can happen to us that can bring fear to our hearts. But then there's another kind of fear. There's the fear of God. That's the vertical fear. That is the fear that Adam felt in the garden. The fear of the wrath of God and the fear of the judgment of God coming against our sins. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, he told us this. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Abraham is feeling fear. You may be feeling fear this morning of something in your life. And God comes to him and he says, Abraham, do fear not. I am your shield. I am your shield. Henry Morris says that this is the first I am in the Bible of the great I am's in the Bible. I am your shield. A shield is a defensive part of the armor that protects us against the arrows of the enemy and the pokes of the sword. It is a protector device. It defends us. And what God is saying to Abraham, I am your protector. If you're afraid of anything, of these enemies, or afraid being alone, I am with you. And it seems to me that as long as, as if God is saying to him, as long as I am with you, as long as you are not afraid of me, as long as you are within my good wills and I am happy with you, you have nothing else to fear. 
That is the true fear. The true fear that we should all f worry about is if is God is against us. But if God is not against us, then we have a shield protecting us against everything else. And that's what Paul, what Paul says. Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? In Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These are the things that can horizontally, circumstantially be against us. But Paul is saying, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As long as he is our shield, we have nothing surrounding us that should bring fear and trouble to our hearts. So Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. The second thing is spiritual doubt that he was feeling. As so he tells him, fear not, I am your shield. The Lord is continuing. Your reward shall be great. And as soon as Abraham hears your reward shall be great, Something in him snaps. Because he's heard this promise before. And his response to the words, your reward shall be great, is, O Lord God, what will you give me? What will you, in other words, reward me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household is my heir. This shows that Abraham's turmoils was deeper than we realize. It wasn't just fear of circumstances around him. It was, it was deeper than that. Abraham was having spiritual doubts in God's promises. I've been waiting long. I left my country. I've come here. And I am still waiting. Now, Abraham realizes, because what did God promise him? God promised him a great, to be a great nation. He will give him the land, and he will bless him. Now, all these promises hinge on the fact that he must have a son. If he doesn't have a son, he cannot become a great nation. If he doesn't have a son, he cannot inherit the land. And if he cannot have a son, he is not blessed by the standards of society at that time. And so when God is telling him, your reward is great, his answer is, what will you give me? All the promises that I've heard from before, repeated time and time again, depend on giving me a child. And here I am going childless. You have given me no offspring. And Eliezer of Damascus, my servant, is going to become my heir. Notice his despair and disillusionment in God's promises had gone so far that he had started making arrangements to make Eliezer of Damascus his heir. Commentators tell us that discoveries from those times have put some light on what that means 
In those days, apparently, when a, a rich man would get old and he would have no children, he would make an agreement with a servant. And he would say, look, you take care of me when I'm old, until I die, and the arrangement will be when I die, you will become my heir. So Abraham is so, has lost so much hope in the promise of God to the point that he either has started or was intending to start this arrangement with Eliezer of Damascus. Waiting on the Lord is a test of faith that can bring many mighty men down. It is one of the most difficult things that we can face when we are praying desperately for a need and God seems to not respond. It is a difficult test. And so God takes him outside. First of all, he says to him, this guy is not going to be your heir. A son from your own loins, from your flesh, will be your heir. And then he ups the ante. Takes him outside, must have been night, and he says, look at the stars. If you can count them, my promise and commitment to you, your offspring will be the number of the stars. Now this is not as much as a promise as it is a challenge to Abraham. It is almost as if God, after he says this to him, he looks him in the eye and says, do you believe me, Abraham? Do you believe that not only are you going to have a son, but your children will be the number of stars? We take that from the response in verse 6. Because as soon as God says that to him, in verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. Praise God. He, didn't, he did not allow his disbelief and disillusionment to conquer him completely. But when God came to his rescue and started speaking to his heart and reassuring him, it's almost as if Abraham is revived, and his faith is revived, and his trust in the Lord is revived. And he says that it is that moment, the most pivotal moment in Abraham's life, when he completely trusted God, that God will indeed deliver on his promise, and that he will have a son. And that moment is when he became righteous in the sight of God. To believe in God in that sense, he had to believe in the truthfulness of God, in the faithfulness of God, and in the ability of God. That God is honest, he is faithful even if he takes long to deliver on it, and that he is able to deliver on it. Because he and Sarah were, Sarah was barren. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans, he says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do 
what he had promised him. And when Abraham became fully convinced and gave glory to God for his promise, it says that he counted it to him. He reckoned it to him. He imputed it to him as righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Kiel and Dilch define righteousness. The word in Hebrew that was used here as righteousness as following. They say this word implies a correspondence to the will of God both in character and conduct. A correspondence to the will of God both in character and in conduct. They go on and they say this was the state in which man was initially created in the image of God but was lost when he sinned. Adam and Eve in not believing God and instead believing the serpent lost their correspondence to the will of God and consequently their righteousness. And then they conclude, they say, this righteousness Abraham acquired through his unconditional trust in the Lord, his undoubting faith in his promise and his ready obedience to his word. That's what it means to believe in the word of God. And that's what it means to become righteous in the sight of God. Correspondence to the will of God, both in character and in conduct. So that's the second, second thing that God had to deal with him and healed him from. Doubt, disbelief, disillusionment, thinking that God will not deliver God made it sure that he believes in him and that God will deliver. The last thing that he seems to struggle with is a sense of insecurity. He's asking for, for assurance. If you look at verse 7, it says, After God talked to him and he believed and counted the righteousness, God wants to go back to the original point that he has started. I believe this verse, I didn't, you know, um, um, this is my own uh, take on it, but I believe when God started talking to him in verse 1, Abraham, fear not, I am, I am your shield, your reward shall be great. His intention was to continue verse 7. You know, uh, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of all of the Chaldeans to give you this land possession. But what happened is, as soon as God got to your reward is great, Abraham interrupted him, snapping and objecting to the idea of reward, and God had to take a break correct him on that and now he's trying to get back to what he was trying to tell him I will give you this land as a possession but then again as soon as he says this to him about the land Abraham again comes back at God and here I don't think it was as much of a, a um, Complaint, like the first statement was from Abraham, I think this was more of a sincere inquiry. In verse 8, he says to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? See, he's trying to make sense of it. How, what, what, what is going to assure me? He's seeking assurance. He's seeking, just, he wants to be secure in the promises of God. And God assures him 
he does two things to him to give him assurance. The first, we see in verses 13 to 16, he gives him, he points him to the fact that I, God, know everything. And I am sovereign of everything. You should, be be, you should be sure of my word because I am God who knows everything and is sovereign over everything. Look with me at verses 13 to 16. He says, Then the Lord said to Abraham in response to how shall I know? He says to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what does God say to him? Lord, how will I know? He puts him in sleep and he gives him this speech about what's going to happen. He gives him a glimpse of 400 years of history. He says to him, Abraham, you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen to you the next minute. But I, the God who is speaking to you, your God, I know all of history. And listen to what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen to your people. They're going to go to a strange land. They're going to be enslaved. I'm going to judge that nation. I'm going to bring them out. And I'm going to make them then enter the land again and possess it. I know everything. God knows everything. He knows the entirety of history from the beginning to the end. And that should bring assurance to our hearts. God knows the macro history, and this is what's beautiful about these verses. Um, God not only knows the history as on a macro level, what's going to happen to nations, Israel, Egypt, the Amorites. That's big history, right? He's moving the history of humanity on a big level. But what is beautiful about these verses is what he says to him on the micro level. Notice in verse 15. After he talks to him about all the nations and all that's going to happen. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in good old age. God, not only does he know history on the big level, but God knows what's going to happen to each and every one of us. He knows our personal history. He knows the events that are going to happen to us. And he cares about them. He knows when we're going to live and how long we're going to live and when we're going to die and what's going to happen to us. Now here's the map. Think about this. This God who is so busy controlling the heavens and the earth, moving history from creation, upholding everything by the power of his word, 
pays attention to you. Comes down and speaks to this man, Abraham. In the biggest scheme of things, who is Abraham? For God to come and spend two days with him, conversing and explaining things to him. Who are we? That this mighty, all-knowing God, who moves history and controls history, to come and speak to us. That's what Job asked him. Remember Job? He says, saying, what is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him. Visit him morning and evening. And test him every morning. Who are we, Lord, that you would pay so much attention to us? And yet he does. The psalmist in 146, he says to him, he says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. Christ said, not a hair will fall from your heads that your Father in heaven doesn't know about it. Everything is known to him. And this is his message to Abraham and this is his message to us this afternoon. You can trust me because not only do I know everything, but I also control everything. I am omniscient and I am um, uh, <laughs> omnipotent. Thank you. I know everything and I am able to deliver on everything. Now one would ask when we read these verses just before I leave them about the nations and, and one would ask if God knows all history and knows the end from the beginning why would he just bring history to conclusion? If he knows why would he make his, the offspring of Abraham go to Egypt, why would he put them through 400 years of slavery and agony, then bring them out, and then bring them back to the land? I mean, what is the point? And the Lord gives us the answer to that, right? He says, I am being patient with sinners. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We can find ourselves like in the saints in Revelation 6 crying to the Lord, how long Lord, how long Lord, how long Lord, before you take revenge? And the answer is God is being patient. God is being patient giving sinners an opportunity to repent. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is why God is taking so long. That is why they had to wait 400 years. This message is important to those original audiences 
Remember, Moses is writing this to the Jews and the Israelites as they are on, about to go into the land. And God is remi reminding them and explaining to them why they had to go through what they had to go in Egypt. And also why it is just and okay for them to go into the land now and execute judgment on the Amorites and take possession of the land. This didn't happen haphazardly. God has planned it from, from the days of Abraham. And now it is your turn, Israelites, to go in and complete and do what God wants you to do. You are, you are doing part, your part of history that God has planned from before the foundations of the earth. And it is important to us to understand this because it assures us that God doesn't bring judgment on sinners haphazardly. And that when God is going to bring judgment on sinners, it's going to be after being patient with them and giving them the full opportunity of repentance. Therefore, his judgment is going to be just and deserved. So that's the first thing he does in answering, how will I know, Lord, that I will take possession of it? You will know because I know everything and I control everything. You can trust me on that. The second thing that he does with him to give him assurance is that he enters into a covenant with him. He tells him to go bring animals, a heifer, a ram, a goat, two birds. And this seems to be something that was uh, known apparently at that time because as soon as God tells him go bring the animals, Abraham, on his own, without being directed by God, not only does he bring the animals, but he kills them, he cuts them in half, and he opens them. He knows God is calling him into a uh, covenant ceremony. They're going to they're gonna make a covenant with each other. And when he kills the animals, it says that the uh, birds of prey come, and Abraham kind of wishes them away. And then darkness come on him, and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, God says to him the words of the covenant, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. Amen. And a smoking pot, fire pot, and a flaming torch come and pass between the animals. Now first, we want to define what a covenant means. And Tim Keller defines covenant as follows, and I, this is a one, wonderful thought to think about. He says that a covenant is entering with someone into a relationship of love and intimacy on the one hand, and law on the other. So love and intimacy and law together. A covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than a legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring than a merely personal relationship. It is a stunning blend between law and love, he says. That's what a covenant is. On the one hand is a legal act that binds us. On the other hand, it's a personal relationship that involves intimacy, and closeness. 
In Deuteronomy 21, 12 to 13, God entered into a covenant with the people and he says the following. He says to them in Deuteronomy 12, 13, he says, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant, covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So here we see those two aspects. On the one hand, your, the your and his is the intimacy. You're going to be his people, he's going to be your God. That's the intimate part of the covenant that you're entering with the Lord your God. On the other hand, it's a, a sworn covenant. He swore. In other words, he entered into a legal binding agreement with your fathers. And it is based on that, that you also enter into that covenant. That's what a covenant is. The second thing about this covenant that God is entering with him, it's one-sided. Notice, God comes in the form of the fire and the torch and passes through the animals. Um, no, normally, both parties would do the same. God would go first, and then Abraham would go. But Abraham doesn't. It's only God who enters, who commits himself to this covenant. It is all of God. We have nothing to contribute to it. It is all of him. Abraham became righteous because God made him righteous through faith alone. No works whatsoever. And this covenant is sealed by blood, smoke, and fire on the side of God. He will ensure that, God, that Abraham and his offspring will take possession of the land. And that's what brings assurance into the heart and soul of Abraham. So notice, the chapter starts with Abraham in utter weakness, in fear, spiritual doubt, and insecure about how is this going to happen. And it ends with the seal of a covenant that God himself performs. It is when we are most vulnerable and needy and utterly dependent on God that great things happen to us and that we enter into a covenant with God. So in conclusion, this chapter from a high point of view is really a chapter, if you think about it, about the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of believers. Um, God is in the business of moving history toward bringing the seed of the woman which he promised in Genesis 3. And he has called this man Abraham, who he has chosen that this offspring and the seed of the woman will be, come from him. And yet Abraham is faltering in faith. He's shaky. 
in this moment. And God comes in and he corrects him. He takes away his fears. He puts him in a state and a place of righteousness and gives him the assurances that he needed to rest in the promises of God. And he seals the whole thing with a covenant of blood and fire. In that sense, we are all Abraham. We are all brothers and sisters, men and women, gripped by fear, by worries. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Many may see us on the outside looking good. They may see our marriages as being good, flourishing marriages. They may see us in a secure job. They may see us healthy and well fit. But we all know that on the inside, when we put our head on our pillows, we all have our own fears. And we all have our concerns. And we all worry about different things. It is a consequence of our fallen nature. We are rightfully fearful. We are also all like Abraham because we are sinners in need of righteousness. We are born into a fallen nature that does not correspond to the will of God. We need to stand righteous before God. Otherwise, the wrath of God is awaiting us. Notice in this chapter, there's two kinds of people. There's Abraham on the one hand, who has become righteous before God. And then there's the Amorites and the Egyptians who received judgment from God. And it's worthwhile asking, which one would I be? Which one am I today? Am I still in fear of the wrath of God? Am I not sure? On the day that I will stand before God Almighty, am I going to receive wrath? Or am I going to receive grace? So we are, we are all in that sense spiritually needy. And we all need security. We all need assurances. We all find ourselves in many moments in life asking with Abraham, how will I know, Lord? What is happening? Why is this happening? What can I do? Why am I, where am I? God did something much greater for us than he did for Abraham, though. Abraham received the word of God through a vision, but we received the word of God. The word of God that was from the beginning, it was with God, and he was God, Christ, our Lord and Savior. And God himself, through the second person, 
His Son, Christ Jesus, came to this earth and dwelt among us. We do not receive God's word through visions or dreams. We have seen Christ himself, the word of God, manifested on the pages of our Bibles, testified to through the apostles. He came and walked through the streets of Palestine, encouraging us not to be afraid. Fear not, he told us. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He proclaimed to us that if we were to repent of our sins and believe in his work, we will indeed stand righteous before God. He assured us, just like Abraham was assured through the sovereignty of God, that he indeed is eternal and sovereign. He told the Jews before, Abraham was, I am. And then he sealed it all on that fateful Friday when darkness came down and he hung on that cross. Abraham had to slaughter animals, but God the Father slaughtered his own son for us. We celebrate not the covenant of Abraham, we celebrate the new covenant of Jesus Christ, which he accomplished by his blood and body. And so today, if we, if we are like Abraham, and we are, if you find yourself today having troubles, whatever kinds of troubles you may be feeling this morning, I point you to the cross. In the cross is the resolution and the rest of our souls. It is in the gospel that we can find comfort and we can be reassured and our faith can be restored and our fears can be taken away. In many ways, Christ has become our shield. He not only defends us against the life circumstances. More importantly, he shielded us against the wrath of God by taking the wrath of God upon himself on our behalf. And those who are shielded by Christ have nothing to fear because they are corresponding in righteousness to the will of God. May he be glorified in our lives always. Amen. Let us bow our heads. We're going to take a moment in prayer. Brother Lewis is going to lead us in prayer of confession, and then we're going to take a couple of moments of silent prayer, reflecting on what we just heard. Heavenly Father, thank you for the